Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Bat bombs. Welcome to the show, ridiculous historians. What the heck are we talking about? Well, we're about to tell you hello. My name is Ben. My name is Noel Ben. You know, we did that before with uh, Knife Man. Yes, it's just a great. It's it's a great musical device. It really is that goes into anything with two syllables. I'm into it. Oh, and I'm also into our super producer Casey Pegram. We were off air today, just about to jump into the studio. And Casey, I don't know, have you ever heard of Bat Bombs? I have not. No, I have no idea what this episode's about. Unless it's Guano, that's the only Bat Bomb I can think of. Oh, hey, that was good. Yeah, no. And, and, I, and uh, funny enough, mm-hmm. I think Guano is actually quite flammable and could be potentially used in explosives. Mm-hmm. And Guano is also quite valuable. That's right. right? We did an episode for a different show on a cannibal cave, you can you can find a Siteka. Uh, we did an episode on cannibal cave that was discovered because of some unscrupulous guano miners. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Bats have actually uh, played a surprisingly influential role in U.S. history at various times, and also bats are one of those creatures that are. Mm, up close, a lot of bats that I've run into are pretty gross. But they're still, just from a biological perspective, amazing. They are amazing. And there is a YouTube video or an Instagram video or one of those videos um, where someone's, like, handling a bat. And it's a particularly cute bat. So they have the potential to be both terrifying and adorable. Is it a fruit bat? It must have been. So there's there's so many different uh, types of bat. And today we are talking about um, a type of plant that the U.S. made with bats. This is, okay, so we have to go in two different directions here, right? And maybe tie them together as we continue. First, it's no secret to any fan of history or to anyone who's perused the adventures of the U.S. military that the U.S. military, like many other militaries, 
has kind of a spaghetti at the wall approach to developing new stuff. And most of the time, it doesn't work out, mm -hmm. you know? You know what this reminds me of, Ben? It's sort of like the Hollywood studio system where you might just have some intern in an office just mm -hmm. pitch some crazy idea that an executive happens to hear. And he's like, you know what? That's just crazy enough to work. That's a good point. This reminds me of a clip that we cannot, for legal reasons, play in full for you. But we can tell you what it is and go uh, check it out on YouTube after the show. Uh, John Mulaney has a great bit about how Back to the Future became a film. Did you ever see that, Noel? I don't think I did, no. Oh, man. Okay, well, we can't stop the show. <laughs> uh, I wish I could just play this for you now. Uh, Google it. I'll send you the link. It is, it is exactly what you were talking about, and that is a very good comparison to the approach that the, the military has taken at times. Uh, today, our story starts, well, it really gets running toward the end of World War II, thanks to a guy named Dr. Little Adams, or Lytle Adams. I'm going to go with Little. Got to be Little. You got a li little, little Adams. L-Y-T-L-E. Yeah. I think if, that's why I'm giving him space to be Lytle Adams, too, just in case. Because I don't know, like, would you want to be walking around called Lil Brown? Yeah. You would be into that? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I support that wholeheartedly. <laughs> So Dr. Adams doesn't begin life as a mad scientist for Uncle Sam. He starts life uh, in Irwin, Pennsylvania, and for a long time, he works as a dentist. Before that, presumably as a baby. Yes, yeah. No, he began life as a middle-aged dentist. That's crazy. Common medical condition. Is that like time. is that like Benjamin Button? Sort of. Yeah, Benjamin Button is is loosely based on the adventures of uh, the dentist Dr. Adams. Now, the adventures of Little Adams, that sounds like a fun, rollicking good time. It sounds like a real romp, doesn't, doesn't it? it? Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> here's what happened in real life. Dr. Adams, and you might not see this unless you watch the director's cut of Benjamin Button. Dr. Adams is driving home from a vacation at Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico. And while he's driving home, he is haunted by this vision. Uh, the, he saw this amazing spectacle. He watched bats leaving the caves of Carlsbad Caverns. And we've seen those clips sure. of, of bats leaving. En masse. Right, right, yeah. right. Little round twilight or like so. A, like a hive mind operating on mm -hmm. some kind of crazy psychic connection. Mm -hmm. And he watched millions of these bats fly out. And as he was driving, he was thinking, wow, that was such an amazing thing. There were so many bats. I had no idea the sheer uh, magnitude of, of nature and all its glory. And he probably, we're speculating a little here, but he probably goes, ah, all right, well, it's a long drive from New Mexico to Pennsylvania. I'm, I'm going to turn on my car radio. I'm going to get the news, hear some tunes. And that's when he hears the terrible news. He's listening on December 7th, 1941. That's when he hears the, the terrible news that Japan has just attacked Pearl Harbor. Yeah, and much like you and I remember likely where we were uh, when the attacks on September 11th took place, everyone in this country likely does, very similar experience to Pearl Harbor. When people first heard that news, it was a, like a slap in the face. It was a real um, emotional response that people had to this event. And that was the case for uh, Dr. Adams. And he kind of oddly combined that emotional response with the vision of swarming uh, bats that he had just seen. 
kind of in a Bruce Wayne-esque way when he discovers the cave, right? Below Wayne Manor. That's a little bit of a spoiler for anybody who has never heard words or seen comics. It's true. So we have to imagine how insane this drive must have been. It's not a short drive home. So is it any wonder that he was left alone with his thoughts and just kept combining and recombining his recent experiences? Either way, it doesn't take him long to take action. He combines this vision, as you said, of these bats and this desire for revenge into a coherent plan. And less than a month later, mid-January, January 12th, 1942, he sends his plan to the White House. What, what does he say? What's the, what's the pitch? Yeah, he thinks it'd be a swell idea to strap tiny bombs to bats, um, release them, and in the hopes that they will roost in the eaves and, and various locations of Japanese cities, at which point they would be detonated, causing chaos across the land. Um, but real quick, this was not the first such idea that uh, Dr. Adams had. He actually came up with, in 1939, an idea for um, a plane that could do mail pickups midair. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was kind of had a history of being something of a tinkerer, even though his uh, trade was in the dental profession. Yes, that's a really good point. This is not a once-in-a-lifetime innovation or or bright idea for him. He, he has several uh, ideas that would seem, uh, at the very least, unorthodox, right, to mainstream humanity. Yeah, big bringing it back to Batman, this um, mid-air pickup idea uh, was very similar to Operation Skyhook mm-hmm. in uh, the, I believe, Batman Begins movie. Is that right? It is in the Dark Knight. Dark Knight, that's right, when they sort of extract Bruce Wayne from a Japanese um, high-rise with this hook and they pull him out um, with this wire. And he came up with this idea while serving in the Navy during World War One, and it consisted of these two kind of vertical walls that made a V-shape at, at the narrow end of which a weighted cable was trailing. And this is underneath the airplane. And as it passed, it would engage in an object to be picked up and then lifted and extracted. So very similar to Skyhook, actually. Mm-hmm. He also, I believe, depleted a lot of his own fortune and personal savings pursuing this until he met Richard DuPont of the DuPont DuPonts. The DuPont DuPonts. Yes. And uh, was it, wasn't that, wasn't it designed to like never land? Yeah, exactly. Because he figured there was, this wasn't like a completely unique idea, but the notion was that a lot of time uh, and effort was wasted when the planes were landing and they had to refuel. So this system in theory would allow it to refuel in the air, pick up, fuel reserves from the ground or even from a passing train they could coordinate and specifically uh, for long-distance mail pickups and freight and things like that. Um, I don't know. I know it was patented, but it certainly never hit in the way that he hoped it would. But fast forward to World War II. Let's go back to the pitch. How was he able to get an audience with the White House in the first place? Because he was not exactly, like, he didn't work for them. He was just kind of a regular Joe who was a tinkerer mm-hmm. on the side. And this whole, you know, mid-flight refueling mail pickup scheme never really gained too much momentum. So he didn't really have a reputation as would, being someone the government should, like, turn to during times of war. Would you say it never got off the ground? I would say that. Ah, man. Oh. But you said it first. Oh, sorry, sorry. No joke left untold. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. 
With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. He did manage to uh, shout above the din, the cacophony of people with unsolicited suggestions, plans, and schemes. We have to imagine, of course, how many people would be writing directly to the White House saying, here's what we do. And it may be worth our time in another episode to look at some of the most unorthodox World War II revenge schemes. But Adams had an edge. He had a very important friend. That's right. This is somewhat a story about nepotism. You see, Adams happened to know a woman by the name of Eleanor Roosevelt. He had flown her to check out his airmail scheme previously, right? And because they had this previous relationship, historians speculate that's the way he was able to uh, get his voice heard. And his idea, his pitch, right? The one that you established earlier, Noel, about dropping these bats in Japanese cities, it made more sense than it might sound at first blush because of Japanese architecture, right? 
Yeah, tell us more about that, Ben. It's not something I had quite considered because I was wondering how were they to get into all of these little nooks and crannies if, you know, it seems like it would take time for them to work their way into the eaves of homes as we know it. But I believe the architecture in Japan was a little more open and possibly more accessible to these uh, small creatures. And they were quite small. They were quite small, yes. So this pitch hinged on some stereotypes about Japan at the time. One of those concerning the architecture In the mind of many Americans, policymakers and civilians alike, Japan was a country composed of crowded cities filled with houses and factories made of paper and wood. And that's their vision of traditional Japanese architecture. So the argument there might be that flying bats with small incendiary devices into a city where most things are built of stone or concrete, uh, that won't do much, right? It takes an enormous amount of heat to damage that stuff. But paper and wood could catch fire with a relatively small uh, amount of flame. But also, wouldn't it have something to do with how easy and quickly it might have been for the bats to work their way into these structures? They weren't, like, sealed airtight quite in the way we would think of a traditional American home, right? Well, they thought they would fly into those, like picture a traditional Japanese tile roof. Right. They thought they would fly into the eaves mm-hmm. of those roofs. I see. Uh, and that this would uh, this would get them close enough to the paper walls gotcha. and wooden that walls. That makes sense. So we have a quote from him. Think of thousands of fires breaking out simultaneously over a circle of 40 miles in diameter for every bomb dropped. Japan could have been devastated, yet with small loss of life, which doesn't really make sense because when cities catch on fire, a lot of people die. So I I guess he was... Maybe he was talking about American lives? Yeah, that's probably... That's... Oof. That's unfortunately... It sounds very accurate. Mm -hmm, Because, I mean, obviously the bats were on suicide missions here. So that's, you know... I, I don't imagine PETA would approve of this plan today. Yeah, yeah, let's let's take a second maybe and talk about the bats. What do you say? Let's do it. All right, so once the project gets the green light, and again, please listen to that John Mulaney Back to the Future bit. It's worth it. Won't ruin it for you. Once the project gets the green light, somehow Dr. Adams gathers a team of naturalists from the Hancock Foundation, University of California, and they start investigating likely sites where they could gather large quantities of bats. As we know, bats are mostly found in caves, but a ton of them roost in attics, barns, houses, bridges, anywhere they can get it and fit in, right? Mm, That's right. It's funny, Casey and I actually attempted to capture a mass exodus of bats like this on video. Uh, In Austin, there's this bridge that's uh, referred to as the Bat Bridge, where every night at a certain time, all of these bats that nest under this bridge, or they kind of just hang out there during the day, go out to feed at night because they're nocturnal animals. But we waited there for an awful long time, and they, they never emerged. So I cannot offer a firsthand account of this, but I have been told that it does happen. Yes, it's true. I don't know if I have revealed this to you guys, but years and years ago, one of my childhood homes actually did have a bat infestation in the attic. And I happened to live in a room that adjoined the attic. And I was surprised to find that at least here in Georgia, you cannot kill the bats. You have to essentially wait for them to leave or compel them to leave whatever area they're roosting in. You mean legally? 
Yeah. Really? Yeah. And you then find whatever hidey holes or ingress egress points they're using and block those mm-hmm. with the hope being that vampire rules, they'll find a new place to sleep before yeah. dawn. That's terrifying. I didn't know that. So that you can't treat them like you would like any other household infestation. No, 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 no. Because they're so good for the ecosystem as well. Interesting. I had no idea about that. So they go, (laughs) Adams, not the bats that I used to live with, uh, they they go around scouring these areas uh, to find the best possible large quantity of bats suitable for this project. According to Adams, they visit a thousand caves and 3,000 mines. And Adams says... Speed was so imperative that we generally drove all day and night when we weren't exploring caves. We slept in cars, taking turns at driving. One car in our search team covered 350,000 miles. And then they started cataloging the types of bats they found, and they were looking for the ideal combination of bat size, which would dictate the amount of explosive the bat could carry, uh, versus bat quantity how many bats of that type could they find because you know if you found like 12 bats that were large enough to carry eight pounds of dynamite you know good for those bats but that's not really going to do anything to a japanese city on a large scale the way they were hoping that's very true and and just uh just a little detail here these were mexican free-tailed bats they decided on because of their size and uh their availability um and so in march of 1943 this is backtracking just a little bit um the u.s air force decided they wanted to investigate this there was a letter that was drafted to formally you know announce the pursuing of this like a memo and it was called test of method to scatter incendiaries. Um, it was also referred to as Project X-Ray. Way cool name. Uses Mexican free-tailed bats. The other bats they tried were things like the Mastiff. The Mastiff bat is huge. as a 20-inch wingspan. It can carry uh, one pound of dynamite. But the problem was they couldn't find enough of these bats. And then they found another bat, the mule-eared or common pallet bat that could carry three ounces But naturalists said, uh, there's no way these guys will survive the strange (laughs) process we're going to subject them to. And when they found the free-tailed bat, the main reason they went with it is because it could travel with a one-ounce bomb over a relatively short distance, even though it only weighed a third of an ounce. And they found 20 to 30 million of them in a cave, in Ney Cave near Bandera, Texas. And it was so large... This kind of ties into the adventure that Noel, you and Casey had in Austin. It was so large that when these bats left the cave, it took five hours for them to all leave out of the cave, flying in a dense stream 15 feet in diameter and so closely packed that they could barely flap their wings. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I mean, obviously, these must be very powerful creatures in terms of their ability to, like like ants. They always say they can carry 10 times their body weight mm-hmm. or whatever. This must be a similar case, although they had to take the weight into consideration when they figured out which bats to use and what uh, amount of incendiaries would pack the most punch. And I'm guessing that it was all considered, like you said, it wouldn't take a whole lot. They weren't, they weren't going to level a building with these mm-hmm. bats. They were going to start a little flame that was then going to catch it on fire and they were going to do them all at once. But Ben, did you catch anywhere in your research how they were planning to detonate these um, bat bombs like all at once or was it on a timer? Timer. It was on a timer. 
Yeah, that makes the most sense. That's probably that's the best way to do it. You know, that, that is the best way to do it. So um, they finally settled on these mm-hmm. Mexican free tail bats, um, and there was a lot of consideration for various stages of this process. Right, mm-hmm. like uh, the questions we were just asking: how to transport them, how to deploy them, um, etc. What were some of the things that they sort of figured out during this process, Ben? Sure, sure. So this project, when it gets a cool name, the army says, "Wait, we want." projects with cool names. So the project is transferred to the army and they start capturing these thousands and thousands of Mexican free-tailed bats at caverns all around the Southwest United States. They wanted to figure out how to get these things from the location where they are, you know, attached to these bombs, these incendiary devices, and then transport them without blowing anything up and then deploying them so that they don't blow up until they're supposed to. The first thing they had to figure out was how to keep the bats calm. And that is when they decided to induce hibernation in yeah, the bats. This is interesting. This is um this is something that might surprise some people. Bats actually do hibernate, which makes it a little bit less inhumane. You know what I mean? Uh bats hibernate from late fall until spring. So October, November to March and April. And I'm just realizing this now. No bats are listening to this podcast Ah, right now. It's probably better that way. (laughs) This could be triggering. (laughs) Until summer or spring, yes. So we know that they will hibernate typically in the same environments uh, in which they roost, but they roost in caves and mines and attics and stuff like that. So how do you strap uh, an explosive device to them or incendiary device and then convince them to hibernate on a plane? What they ultimately decided to do was to stick the bats in ice cube trays. Again, these are very small. They only weigh about, uh, uh, they weigh less than an ounce. But surely not the kind of ice cube trays you and I are used to. I mean, that's that's way too small. One little compartment uh, in an ice cube tray that would go in our freezer. All my ice cube trays are specifically designed to fit bats. That's fair. <laughs> it's pretty unfair to the bats. But would the, would the, the explosives be strapped to them already at this point? Or would they have to, like, put them on after they woke them up? This whole thing seems like a logistical nightmare. And, right. and it seems like stuff that they didn't consider up front when they said, hey, this guy's on to something. Well, it seems like a lot of bats probably died in the in the process of figuring out the best way to do this. Well, and ultimately, these were suicide bats anyway, so they right. were all destined for death. Right. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 
tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. (laughs) Well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. They also had to figure out how to release these bats in midair. So they thought, we'll have a cardboard container that automatically opens and releases the bats. And they were trying to figure out how to do this. They spent a lot of time working out the perfect order of operations And then they took it to real testing. They took it off the drawing board into the world and they found out that there was a lot of stuff they needed to work on. Oh, yeah. A lot of kinks. Um, There's an article in The Atlantic called Old Weird Tech, The Bat Bombs of World War II by Alexis C. Madrigal. Um, And in this article, she talks about some of the uh, unfortunate mishaps that occurred when they really started doing real-world testing, Um, one of which uh, involved a general's car that was exploded, basically burned, um, and also an airplane hangar that uh, sustained some pretty serious damage. Uh, They did pass this off to the Marine Corps, Mm -hmm. and the testing continued. Yeah, so when they passed it to the Marine Corps in December of 1943, uh, the operation was moved to the Marine Corps Air Station in El Centro, California. The definitive test was carried out after several experiments uh, on what they called a Japanese village. It was a mock-up of a Japanese city built by the Chemical Warfare Service at their Dugway Proving Grounds test site in Utah. And this test produced uh, not terrible results. So the chief of incendiary testing at Dugway wrote, a reasonable number of destructive fires can be started in spite of the extremely small size of the units. Those are the bats. The main advantage of the units would seem to be their placement within the enemy structures without the knowledge of the householder or fire watchers, thus allowing the fire to establish itself before being discovered. So what they're saying is when they get into these attics and these eaves, it is highly unlikely that somebody will notice this very, very tiny, tiny, tiny furry creature. Um, And they probably won't notice the fire until it's too late. My question, though, is we know the way bats behave 
wouldn't they all go to one place? Like, what what was causing, what was leading them to go... To disperse. To disperse. Because it doesn't seem like that's what bats typically do. It seems like they kind of, like, have that hive mind quality to it. And I was joking when I said they have, you know, psychic connections or whatever. But sometimes when you see flocks of birds or bats or, or any kind of creatures like that migrating or moving in these tight patterns together... I just don't know. It seems very random. They would not, obviously, they wouldn't have been able to control where they went. They would just hope that they went enough different places that this would actually cause some significant damage over a, a large area. Yeah, it's it's a good question. Maybe there's an argument that the bats would be so disoriented just waking up from hibernation that they're just seeking a shelter. Yeah. You know, for now, it looks like the answer to that is still unclear in the modern day oh we do have to mention also people called this the adams plan in common conversation when you know when they weren't referring to it officially as project x-ray but one of the things that they thought would be another great advantage was that the use of bats would be demoralizing so there was some psyop here as well all in all there's a total of 30 demonstrations of this technology this plan and $2 million spent over, over the period of development with full-scale bomber bat test planned for August 1944. However, Fleet Admiral Ernest J. King, who at the time was Chief of Naval Operations, learned that the bats would not be ready for combat until mid-1945. Well, that's not going to fly. Right. He abruptly canceled the operation. And... Needless to say, Dr. Adams was disappointed. There's also a little bit of interesting historical speculation here, too, because there was another, even more secret, perhaps even more ambitious and insane project that Uncle Sam was pouring a ton of resources into. Yeah, and likely needed every last uh, penny, and that was the atomic bomb, which ultimately uh, and tragically was used to end that conflict and then never again the most powerful explosive device ever created at that time much different from several thousand bats right so dr adams obviously this this is a real bummer for our pennsylvanian dentist yeah and he was understandably disappointed because this would have been his second uh big idea that seemed to be going somewhere and then ultimately didn't quite hit in the way that he wanted it to. Right, Ben? Oh, yeah, because of air pickup. But this was these two ideas were not his only two ideas. He had no. some other stuff, right? Yeah. And progressively, <laughs> I would say, you know, the bat bomb, between the bat bomb and the air pickup, bat bomb was way more on the surface crackpot, even though it did have some function to it. But these these last ones that we're going to talk about are a little bit more on the, uh, the kooky side. But you clearly a forward-thinking man. And clearly has a thing about aviation and the power of flight. So he had this, he, he later has this plan to use bombers to distribute seeds across the prairie land in, in hopes of revolutionizing agriculture, right? That's, that's pretty ambitious. It's also way less destructive. It's kind of the same thing as bombing places with bats. That's true. Uh, and then he had another idea, non-aviation related. This is my favorite one. Yeah, uh, where he thought it would be a good idea. People would flock to a uh, fried chicken vending machine. I absolutely would. But how would you keep it fresh? It has to be like fried on demand. You yeah. would have to hit the button, do make your request, 
and then it would have to be able to automatically fry the So chicken. it would be sort of like those Coke machines where it picks up the bottle with like a little thing oh, and then yeah, lifts yeah. it up and then drops it, only it would be like a whole, you get to watch your chicken being fried. And you'd have to order it one piece at a time. I want to know more about the, uh, the logistics of this. Well, I want to tell you uh, that someone has made this dream a reality. What? Yes. Dr. Adams, if you are listening from the eternal hibernation of death, uh, this is something that hopefully will warm your heart. There is a vending machine that serves fried chicken. Is it in Japan? I don't know how he would feel about it, but it is in Japan. Yeah. I mean, obviously, of course, all cool vending machines yeah, are in true. Japan. And we know they love fried chicken, too. Yes, especially around Christmas. Yeah. A Japanese convenience chain named Lawson Incorporated is testing this machine out, or they were as of December of 2018. So this is breaking news. Uh, this comes to us through Technobob, and this is in Shinagawa Ward in Tokyo. The machine has technology that allows it to fry a chicken in a little bit over a minute, but somehow they prepare the chicken and keep it warm until someone orders it. To me, that's where it breaks down. Yeah. Because fried chicken, it's like French fries. It's like most fried food. You got to eat it. When it's fresh. Yeah, you know? that's true. That's why nobody wants gas station fried chicken sitting under that like hot lamp for God mm -hmm. knows how long. No, mm -hmm. no, no. It's got to be fresh and crispy and juicy and delicious. So we want to hear from you, uh, fellow ridiculous historians out there uh, in Japan, especially if you're in this area of Tokyo, because this trial only operated from, I guess, mid-December to December 28th. 2018. So right now, the good folks at Lawson Incorporated, we can only imagine, are studying the results of their fried chicken experiment. And you know what? I hope it works out. I am a big fan of vending machines, and I would give it a shot, even though if you look at the photo, there is one photo of this fried chicken from a vending machine, they look more like chicken nuggets than, you know, like a two-piece or three-piece. I don't know about you, man, but I like my chicken bone-in. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a fan of boneless fried chicken, um, but, you know, they're, they're, you can't quite beat uh, a freshly fried um, bone-in bird. That's true. I wonder if we should do the history of vending machines as an episode. Wouldn't that be cool? I would love to hear about that. I have a feeling it started like on the boardwalks and the carny <laughs> times, you know, things like that. This is just speculation on my part, but I think that's a great idea, Ben. And I wonder where it would start because there were some places in, we may have talked about this in a previous episode, Noel, but I know there were some places in England centuries and centuries ago where it was like a manual vending machine. You would walk up to a wall and then you would knock or slide a penny or something across and then someone would just hand you, I think, a small cup of gin. Nice. <laughs> uh, according to uh, Dr. Internet, the first vending machine uh, came out in the 1880s in London and it was uh, for purchasing postcards. And oh. was invented by Percival Everett. But you know there's a long and storied history <laughs> of vending machines as they evolved over time. Um, how we came from bat bombs to vending machines. I guess we're just talking about forward-thinking, innovative types, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, Ben. Let's, let's definitely do history of vending machine episodes. Let's definitely do it. Let us know about your favorite vending machine. Let us know about your favorite seemingly crackpot military scheme because – Oh, buddy, this is only scratching the surface. Uh, the U.S. military and other militaries have attempted to use dolphins for wartime efforts, cats for spying, I think rats as well for something. We did an episode on this. 
We did an episode here on yeah, this? Uh-huh. Oh, Remember nice. about the, the Skinner boxes and oh, the, the yeah. animal uh, sideshow kind of carnival yeah, yeah, TV yeah. show? Yeah. Uh, there was like a whole farm where they took these animals that they had trained for military purposes and like made money with the chicken that would peck the, yeah, the yeah, buttons yeah. or whatever. How time flies. Oh, it really does. We've been doing this for like over a year now. Have we? Yeah. It's, I don't think we ever acknowledged the year anniversary, but it has come and gone. Making a show like this is is sort of like in all those classic uh, cartoons where Elmer Fudd or Wile E. Coyote or, you know, Daffy Duck or Bugs Bunny, when they walk off the cliff and they just keep walking until they look down, just don't look down. Yeah, I call it critical mass. Critical mass. Yeah, you know, you do something, you just kind of like have this uh, trajectory and you just never look back. And as long as you don't look back, you kind of forget what's going on or how time passes. Now we're going into philosophy as well. Uh, But well said, and we hope that you enjoy this episode. We do want to hear these answers. I will look at pictures of your favorite vending machines or the most unusual vending machines uh, until the stars collapse and the universe uh, meets its end. In the meantime, thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks to our super producer, Casey Pegram. Yeah, thanks to Alex Williams, who composed our theme. Thanks to our research associate, Gabe. And uh, we're going to try a new thing. Hey, if you want to check out me and Ben's individual exploits, since our, our, our show um, Instagram account is not the most fascinating in the world, you can check me out at Embryonic Insider on Instagram. And you can find me at Ben Bolin on Instagram. Yes, in a burst of creativity, folks. Uh, The newest thing that I have up is maybe the uh, Saturn V Lego replica that I, I, I built this weekend, which is huge. Very impressive. It's weird. You can find us on our respective Instagrams. You can find us on Twitter. You can also find us on Facebook. Perhaps most importantly, you can find your fellow Ridiculous Historians on our Facebook community page, Ridiculous Historians. And please tune in to our next episode where we talk about the ridiculous origins of uh, state names, specifically Idaho. We'll see you then. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon Waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.